right now, just to flat tell you the truth, we look through the tools and things like that and say, okay, we don't really have to have that, and we sell it. That is better than running at a loss. There, there's no way to come out on this deal ever running at a loss. Happy New Year, drivers. I'm Todd Dills, your host for this final 2020 edition of the Overdrive Radio Podcast. Daniel and Phyllis Snow, who you heard at the top, they're here, as are all the owner ops and government administrators and brokers and drivers and all else we talked to this year. We're going to hear from a lot of them as we tour back through this so-so-chaotic and pivotal of years in trucking in America. We'll be counting down the top 10 podcasts of the year along the way. Before we get there, a few of my personal favorites. In addition to that quote from the snows you heard at the top, in audio montage format. Here we go. The herd bumper on the front, I hate it. It covers up the beauty of the A-model hood, but I've taken out a few four-legged furry creatures, and it hasn't hurt the truck at all, so I guess the bumper has to stay. In this business, it's all in who you know. It's a lot about what you know. And service is the only thing you have to offer, and if you don't offer good service, they get somebody else. Um, I just think that we have to, everybody has to take a step back and, and just, be, just take a deep breath and be smart about the decisions that that you make because one one false move can change um, can change the, the outcome of not only your life but several other people's lives. A lot of times people, these kind of subjects, People just steer, steer, you know, for far too long, we, 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 we avoid a difficult conversation. Yes, it was a protest, and some people, I think, get lost, lost, right, lost in that word. Yeah, especially with everything that's going on in the world since then. But, you know, let's look at this. We had a couple hundred truck drivers basically living on the side of the street for three weeks. We had two, two or three different camps set up with barbecues going on and cooking food. Like, basically all day and night, they were cooking to feed everybody. And, um... There was no trash left behind. There was nothing burnt, nothing broken, nothing. I mean, and, and that's why, you know, how he explained how the police work with us so well is because they're like, dude, this is, yeah. They were actually stopping by and eating with us and stuff like that. It's, it's all in creating a relationship with people that you can trust and they trust you. As an old owner operator and as a driver, I don't understand how you can stay shut down. I really don't. I don't think that's helping anybody's cause. I think, um, you know, the more trucks that run in the market today, the better off the industry is. And I'm not saying it's going to improve rates or it's going to reduce rates, but staying parked and not working isn't sending a good message either. For you and us and for the future. Hey. I still do the arm pump, even as an adult, and I continue to. And that is that's one that's one oral piece of history that I think we should both keep our ends going. You know, <laughs> keep doing it. it keep doing it. Everybody do the arm pump, and 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 for the drivers out there, uh, blow that horn. Exactly. Find a playlist of 14 shows in the Channel 19 blog post that houses this podcast for December 31st, 2020. There, you can hear in full any of the additions in the top 10 here that follows, plus four that were basically just out of the top 10 by 100 or so listens. Four-way tie for number 11, more or less. Find that at overdriveonline.com slash channel 19. And before we hit number 10 here, quick word from Overdrive Radio's sponsor. If you're a leased owner-operator, you need quality insurance to keep you protected. Call First Guard for the commercial truck insurance you need and the service you deserve. First Guard is the trucker's insurance company. We understand your needs and offer physical damage and non-trucking liability insurance for leased owner-operators. With First Guard, you always get fast and friendly service. Visit firstguard.com. That's the number one, stguard.com. First Guard, we speak trucker. Let's talk. So first up, number 10. 
There was some method within the madness that was the month of March 2020 as the virus that causes COVID-19 took off in the United States. In this podcast, we talked to owner-operator Ingrid Brown, who'd been hauling produce into Hunts Point Market in New York City through the early weeks as COVID cases were skyrocketing there and the entire nation struggled with just how to respond to the threat. Owner-operators, of course, were included in that. I asked Ingrid this question. Come through this, okay? What are you What are you doing to um, you know, just uh, keep yourself in out of harm's way out there? Uh, well, actually, when I get to the market, uh, other than having to get out and open my own doors and hand my paperwork to them at the door, you know, they come to my door mm-hmm. to get my paperwork, and they bring it back to my to my door. I pull up and they've he, they've been shutting my doors for me, so I don't have any contact while I'm in the city. Um, right. And at the market, other than, you know, when I check in at the toll, you know, at the booth, when you check in to get into the market, and then that, the two times there. Um, other than that, it's it's pretty much, um, if I go to the port over there, I have, you know, I check in, uh, same thing. I back up to the door, call them. When I'm loading cabbage, I call they tell me what door I back to the door. I see nobody but one person walks up and hands me the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I came down yesterday to, to Bordentown, where I'm at right now, and um, went in and made sure I went in in the middle of hours where there was nobody inside, grabbed a shower. Gotcha. That's, you know, yeah, it's it's. I ordered something to eat. Uh, they and I brought it out to the truck and ate here. Um, I make sure that instead of like going to trash cans, I go to their main dumpster site because there's usually two or three open top cans there where you don't have to try to push something into a something with a lid or something like that. I mean, I think a little things like that. So other than that, I've been just, you know, staying in the truck, uh, trying to make sure hand sanitizer is impossible to find. That's impossible. I've literally been my hands or I I did a video the other day and my hands look like uh, been digging fence posts because I've been cleaning them so much with simple green and and Clorox wipes and Mm. uh, because I can't find anything else you know Uh, yesterday I went through my whole truck and just took Clorox wipes and wiped everything down and then took some band disinfectant and wiped everything back down on top of the Clorox wipes and I mean and, and you kind of got to use your judgment of the areas you go into, but you can't lose sight of the areas you go into that haven't been reported, really. Um, it's kind of a, um, I know at home they've had, now they've had more cases reported in the last 24 hours, even in my home county in North Carolina, that, you know, who would have thought? Um, and we don't know Which, where they came from. Also in that edition of the podcast, Overdrive's own contributing writer Paul Marhofer's first in a series of dispatches from the road, documenting we calling through what had been by then officially declared a global pandemic. At a fuel stop in southern Michigan, stopping to weigh, I push the communal button at a cat scale and wait. It's 9 p.m. Normally, the stop would be pretty full by now. More than half the parking spaces here are vacant. After a few seconds, a weary cashier responds. First way or reway? First way. Truck number 230. I have your weight. You know the drill. By now, realizing my transgression, I get parked up and make a beeline for the restroom. Tonight, at least, there is soap in one of the dispensers. I scrub my hands like an army surgeon, like Lady Macbeth, like a 60-year-old working stiff with lungs shot from seven bouts of pneumonia. A middle-aged woman places my scale ticket and chains on the counter, deftly avoiding the reach of my hand, says thank you, and looks away. Who could blame her? I head out and push north to Livonia. For the first time in my digitally distracted head, it registers. This thing is on. In the tea leaves of the truck stop, much can be read. During the Great Recession, one of my oldest friends out here, a Kentucky-born driver we'll just call Lone Ranger, 
could predict with stunning accuracy how much the stock market would fall by the number of empty parking spaces at the Dalton, Georgia pilot, exit 326. He pulled this off two or three times, ever mindful of his once flush 401k. He called me one morning while he was on his way to Florida. There was 80% of the parking spaces empty at the 326 last night. We're going to drop 800 points come Monday. Mark my words. Sure enough, I tune into the radio on Monday afternoon. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 821 points today amidst concerns of... After a while, though, he quit predicting. And we all hunkered down for what was to come. While I don't recommend you begin short-selling stocks based upon the Lone Ranger Truck Stop Vacancy Index, I do know it's probably never a good idea to underestimate any old boy from Kentucky or to touch communal buttons at fuel stops these days without washing your hands. Still, as weird as things are getting out here, consider the plight of our Chinese counterparts. As of March 4th, According to the Wall Street Journal, a huge portion of China's 30 million truckers were either locked down at home or quarantined somewhere on the road as government there mounted a huge effort to contain effect of the virus. One can only try to imagine the financial and relational toll on their spouses and families. Still, it's difficult to find any folksy index on how COVID-19 will play out here, despite the impulse to prognosticate in the face of panic. What I've seen and heard so far better resembles the first stages of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, denial, and anger, especially for anyone who would view all this through a purely political lens. At a Michigan warehouse, a group of day-cabbers were clustered up last week, opining while I was waiting on my paperwork. There is nothing else now out here that anyone seems to be talking about. This is the O.J. trial squared, if not cubed, ubiquitous as Christmas music on Black Friday. The topic you're tired of but can't stop thinking about. A driver in biker boots with a crew cut and a long beard interjected, all this is is them trying to take down Trump, because he don't take none of their, you know, rhymes with it. Well, evidently they must have missed, because later that same day it was announced that Sophie Trudeau, the Canadian equivalent of the U.S. First Lady, had tested positive for the virus. Still, the five stages of grief? Come on, man, you may say. Regardless of the virus, one thing that eventually dies in all of us is the notion of our own indestructibility, biker boots notwithstanding. One day you're young, wild, and free. Then you wake up and you're 50, working in a Michigan fuel stop, praying some grubby-handed trucker doesn't breathe a pandemic upon you. So what's a $700 billion industry to do? For now, at least... In the words of Bill Weaver, we drive on. A veteran trucker called the Sirius XM Road Dog show host Mark Willis, my favorite interviewer on the network, and gave a simple piece of practical advice, well worthy of print, I'd say, to his fellow drivers. Carry your own pen. It wasn't long before drastic measures taken by government and individuals caught up to what's perhaps the most important thing in any trucking business. As one longtime owner-operator uh, put it to me at the time, there was just one big thing on his mind when it came uh, to worry about the near future. He could sum that up in just a single word. Loads. The number nine podcast in the countdown turned to the scene of the three-week-long demonstration along Constitution Avenue by the White House as owners and other truckers parked in efforts to bolster attention, many said, to the dealings, uh, the issues of dealings of some in the brokerage world. Allegations of quote-unquote reverse price gouging were flying, and the regulatory requirement for brokers to disclose freight charges and other records to parties in any brokered freight transaction. That requirement became a focal point for the demonstrators, spawning much later conversation. 
Oklahoma-based owner-operator Brian Hutchins, among the organizers of the annual That's a Big 10-4 on D.C. outreach event on the National Mall in D.C., joined those demonstrators for a few days, a week or two into it all, and painted the scene this way. We have a lot of problems in the industry that are not getting addressed because we have people in D.C. that are obviously going and meeting with politicians, and they've got a lot more money in their campaign funds to be able to donate than we do. So... Um, it's great to see people show up to watch them go out there and actually stand up and make their voice heard, let people know what they're going through on a daily basis, because the general public does not know what we as truck drivers deal with on a daily basis inside these trucks. The only thing they know is us going down the road and getting in their way. Um, a lot of these people that have, that are there right now, and vast majority of them are people that have never been to DC before and what they're finding out is when you're on the side of the street down there um, people are stopping all day long to stop and talk to you to see what's going on to see why you're there um, and you can actually talk to those people and explain what's going on in your industry and how these things affect you personally and the industry as well and people are a lot more sympathetic to your cries then than they are when you're on Facebook posting about it. So we got down there, I actually rolled in with uh, five people. It was uh, Alan and Bonnie Kelly, Brian Braze, uh, Raymond Friend and myself. We all decided to convoy down. You know, we've been down there multiple times together uh, and we've all pretty much done the 10-4 event together every year. So I was coming through and Alan was home and we all decided just to convoy down and and go talk to these people and, and see what their opinions were and maybe interject some of our own and see what everybody thought about it. So that's what we did. We, uh, we convoyed down in. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen on the streets of DC. Uh, <laughs> typically people are upset. They are uh, protesting, you know, and typically you're angry when you're protesting. These people have been there so long, they found their happy spot and they are, they're protesting, but they're actually getting the public involved, honking horns when they go by, you know, these guys are, they're self-sustaining at this point up there. They've had people help fund them so that they can stay there. Uh, they've got trailers set up with kitchens in them. They're feeding these people every day. Uh, as far as I know, uh, it's a donation only if you want to donate anything, but they're feeding it and making sure all these people are taken care of for free just out of the goodness of their heart because they believe in the reason that they're there. It took a bit of time, but the persistence of the truckers involved in the so-called May Day demonstrations, which had begun on May 1st, eventually did get the attention of the White House, spawning uh, reported investigations into allegations of those, those allegations of reverse price gouging, as well as attention to the regulation offering transparency into brokered rates for carriers and shippers involved in any transaction. A listening session later in the year conducted by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration and featured on this podcast as well, saw brokers and carriers at loggerheads on the issue. And it remains to be seen just where the Fed's attention to that regulation will ultimately end up. Search transparency at overdriveonline.com for the latest. Also in that podcast, uh, news of a fringe benefit, perhaps, of the pressure the administration was feeling over the long ongoing demonstration. In the midst of it, FMCSA released its final rule on hours of service changes designed to enhance flexibility, the subject of so much prior advocacy. Early takes were plenty skeptical. As per usual, the Department of Transportation has wrapped up a pretty package and it's like opening up a present on Christmas Eve and there's nothing in it. I'm an owner-operator, been doing it since 1994, and there's nothing of value in this change for the Department of Transportation rules for owner-operators, for long-haul drivers. The hours changes would be a searingly hot topic on the podcast later in the year as they went into effect. Shifting gears in a decidedly not automatic way here to number eight in the countdown, my talk with owner-operator Debbie Desiderato about her role as technology skeptic in Car and Driver's documentary film about autonomous technologies and their fast rise in the auto world. In the film, called simply Autonomy, 
The owner-operator questioned the assumptions of tech developers about the public's acceptance of pilotless 80,000-pound vehicles. And in our conversation, she voiced a healthy degree of skepticism about the March 2 so-called Level 5 autonomy, the level at which the driver is no longer needed inside the vehicle. You know, out there on the interstate, um, I don't think we're anywhere near ready for this. <laughs> you know, we, um, we still haven't perfected the internet and cellular connections. And, you know, the ELV is proof of that. I have... Uh, malfunctions every day that are the result of um, <clears throat> dropped cellular connections, you know. And in in uh, Indiana, the, the filming took place probably about 18 months ago now. And, um, you know, I was able to get a load out there and, you know, just get there on time. And, and uh, we filmed for about 12 hours and... You know, they they did they took some great shots. I think, um, you know, they had a drone filming, and and then they I was following them. They were in a minivan in front of me, and they had the back door up, and they were filming from that. And we'll drive them through a sleepy little town in Indiana at sunrise, which was really cool. And um, yeah, I, I'm against them. You know, for big trucks, I think in controlled environments I think they're great like on college campuses and stuff like it, it showed in the documentary you know maybe on you know on private property like like shopping malls and may, maybe in you know small villages where the speed limit's 25 miles an hour that kind of thing I think it's fine but you know out there on the interstate um, I don't think we're anywhere near ready for this <laughs> You know, it's pretty scary to think, you know, that these machines are going to be out there, you know, with nobody behind the wheel. And that is the ultimate goal, is to get rid of the driver. Um, and they say, you know, look at the money we're going to save on shipping. Well, <clears throat> look at the money we don't save by using a... Uh, automated checkout system in the supermarket or you know an ATM all these things that got rid of you know human involvement does not save us any money in fact it costs us money like an ATM <laughs> you know we pay three or four bucks you know to to have an automated teller so <clears throat> it's not going it's not going to save save us any money on shipping you know it's going to line the so it's kind of like shifting the cost of things from one place to the other is the is the is the dynamic that you have going on there right like in, in terms of when we think about ATMs and i guess you could probably say the same about uh uh there's probably some of the same dynamic that would result um with uh, autonomous vehicles as well yeah, I don't think it's in the best interest of the public or the consumer. You know, it's in the best interest of the software companies and the corporate fat cats. Moving know. a little closer to the present moment, our visit with owner-operator Independent Drivers Association President Todd Spencer, a well-known voice among owners, no doubt, got down to brass tacks uh, on what was a disappointment to the majority of Overdrive's audience, uh, Trump's loss to now President-elect Joe Biden. Spencer and OOIDA Executive Vice President Louis Pugh spoke to likely new political realities in Congress and in the administration. They gave a little teaser, too, of Spencer's own later suggestion to the Biden team that when it comes to the post of FMCSA Administrator... I'd like to see Todd Spencer there. <laughs> Todd? <laughs> I think my phone must have broke up. <laughs> Among the issues discussed was, uh, again, that of the transparency of broker transactions, whose profile was so raised by the drying up of some freight markets with the pandemic-inspired lockdowns of the spring, those demonstrations against underhanded tactics and more I mentioned earlier. OIDA have petitioned the agency to require an automatic disclosure of brokerage transaction records upon delivery of any load. 
The broker group, TIA, countered by petitioning for the transaction records regulation to be removed from the rules entirely. Would FMCSA be likely to continue its focus on resolving the disputes over the regulation, I asked him? I think they kind of have to. And uh, simply because of the, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the priority that this has kind of been given. And, and of course, you know, the administration, the Trump administration, had assigned this, uh, this issue to the Department of Justice to look at. We've not heard anything from DOJ on uh, how their, their investigation into this has gone, but, but I think the agency has to do something with it. It's probably, you know, to point out the obvious, uh, you know, the, the transparency requirement that we're talking about here has been on the books for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, uh, we just, you know, the, we just have some on the other side of the issue that simply choose not to comply with that aspect of the regulation. Now, if they did, does that necessarily change anything? Not necessarily. It just says transparency disclosure. Right. It doesn't change anything uh, per se, other than it can make all parties more informed about the overall economics and transportation. Yep. And I don't really see how you can complain about, you know, we're providing too much transparency here. Brokers are, their role in this is the, in essence, the intermediary between the carrier and the shipper. And you're going to have shippers that are going to prefer to work. They would much prefer to work with a, a transportation intermediary than they would a hundred different truckers uh, from just from an administrative standpoint. You can understand the motivation and the attractiveness. Uh, and then, of course, the you know the dilemma. You know, we would always tell truckers to work directly with the shipper if you can. But it's, again, that's not always going to be possible. It's not going to always be possible with big shippers. It's not going to be always possible in areas where you may not frequent regularly. Again, we all have roles that we play in moving goods. And it's in the interest of all of us concerned that we treat each other fairly. So... We treat each other fairly, and, and, and honesty and you know transparency is a part of that. Number six in the countdown, Kansas Trooper Nick Wright delivered sound level three inspection advice just ahead of the Operation Safe Driver roadside enforcement event where the driver-only inspection is the main event. One area of emphasis Wright stressed to drivers was the uh, particulars of the ELD mandate. We still have, we're still finding a lot of drivers that are not operating on ELDs who are supposed to be. Uh, just a oh, misunderstanding really? of what system they're on or what system they're supposed to be on. And even just some of those littler things like the onboard information they have to have with ELDs. There's four things that they have to have that goes along with their ELD. They need to have their user's manual. They need to have an instruction sheet that explains how to transfer their ELD file to enforcement. They need to have an instruction sheet that tells them what to do in case of a malfunction, which is really pretty simple. They notify their carrier in writing within 24 hours and switch to paper logs. And then the fourth thing is that blank supply graph grids. And a lot of those things, drivers don't realize that they're contained with the device when they get it as far as in the user's manual or even electronically. And so they do have to have those four things. They're pretty simple. I always tell drivers, just put it in a Ziploc bag or a, an envelope, put it in your door pouch or your visor, and just leave it there. And that way you've got everything in one place, real easy to find. Okay. So being being prepared and, and just knowing where your documents are, how to operate your ELD will make the inspection go quicker, get you on down the road faster. It'll get you, if it is a roadside inspection, it'll get you off the shoulder quicker, which is safer for everybody, and it'll get you to your destination so you can get that next load delivered sooner than later. Log annotations, particularly within ELD software, to explain a particular status or flag an error for enforcement who may access the log later, those have been uh, quite a hot topic ever since the mandate was first announced five years ago. 
I asked uh, Trooper Wright about log annotations advice generally, but also about a particular scenario where a driver neglects to put his ELD in personal conveyance mode and breaks up a sleeper berth period by driving across a truck stop lot to get closer to a restroom. Wright proved a voice of reason on this much remarked upon issue giving this advice. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just be open and honest and upfront and tell us about it. There's, uh, I, I can't stand being lied to. I mean, I'm a pretty easy guy to get along with, and I just want to uh, go on. You know, I got a job to do. Our drivers have jobs to do, and we're supposed to be in this thing together. And if you make a mistake, just let us know right away. And I've had guys, you, you pull them in or you stop them on the side of the road and ask for the logbook, and they say, hey, man, it's not current. I forgot to update it until I saw your lights come on. I didn't want to be right when you walked up here. And I, we prefer that much more than the guy who's, trying to lean over and scribble in his logbook as we're walking up to the to the truck so just let us know hey i was in the truck stop last night i, I had an issue i knew i wasn't going to make it if i tried to walk all the way across the truck stop through my truck and gear i was i had one track mine i forgot to forgot to put it in pc and now you see this little 15 minute blip where i went from from sleeper berth to driving or on duty and it screws up my 10 hour break so we're going to look we can look and see, well, what was the GPS location? What was the mileage on the truck? The mileage probably isn't going to change. If anything, a tenth of a mile or so. We're going to be able to see that and see that yeah. you weren't out driving around, delivering a load or doing something else. So we're going to look for those things. But just let us know, you know, hey, I messed this day up here. Just so you're aware, here's what happened. Put an annotation in there. Forgot to switch to PC due to restroom break or something like that. And, and uh, you know, we're not, we're really not out here trying to, to make it hard on drivers, we're just here to verify compliance with all the federal regulations and get everybody from point A to point B safely. Number five in the podcast countdown. From the depth of the pandemic lockdown inspired crash and freight in the spring again, two voices on the reasons they were not hauling within their 1990s uh, Freightliner. Regular readers will know that truck as the Goose. Those voices and the green tractor with its custom-designed sleeper belong to none other than Arkansas-based Daniel and Phyllis Snow, bringing everything back to basics in business calculation with some sage advice, which you also heard at the top of the show. But as both also stressed, the fall-off in the spring felt less like a sudden emergency than the culmination of a fall long in process, with a few upward blips on a continuum going back for several years. I'd have to I'd have to warn you though this uh, this day and time has got us not in our normal uh, chippery mood. We we've been battling these loan programs and the brokers and the loads for a month and a half now. And tell you the truth, we're just totally beat up on it. So we're uh, uh, we love you to death, and we really appreciate everything that you do for us and the trucking industry um and it's the grumpiness is not uh intended toward you but i i would warn anybody that listens to this it's going to be pretty frank uh, when the government shut down in december 2018 when the government shut down uh was when our rates started a slow descent okay they have made a recovery uh, in that length of time. Now, to put that in a specific number, we ran about the same amount of miles in 2018, or 2019, I'm sorry, 2019, as we did in 2013, just to compare two separate years. Okay. We made only 60% of our gross in 2019 that we had made in 2013 on right. almost identical miles. So, so that's how much the whole year of 2019 was down because from December of 18, when the government shut down and the, and the descent started, now, it was a slow dis descent for most part, but mm -hmm. uh, by January of 2020, uh, the rates were getting down to marginal on being able to make a profit. Now, I love the trucking industry. Phyllis loves the trucking industry. You love the trucking industry, but we still have to make a living. 
So we become pretty alarmed actually in in January of 2020 okay. uh, because it didn't look like it was going to bounce back. Uh, uh, through 19, we basically had the assumption, at least in the back of our mind, that the you know things would bounce back. The 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 economy looked pretty good, and uh, fuel was kindly headed downward. But here's the thing about when you watch a stock market and watch that fuel. Every time the fuel drops, the rates drop. Okay, there has to be a floor that is, and this is a mental floor in my mind, of what the rate has to be. Because insurance, tires, maintenance, engines, transmissions, none of that goes down. So you have yep. a floor of where your rate is. And let's just say, for example, that that would be $2 a mile, for example. Uh, some people's costs are higher, some are lower. The only thing that should fluctuate down is the fuel surcharge. And right now, the instead of taking twenty-five or thirty dollars off of a rate, that would be the fluctuation of a fuel surcharge because the fuel is down. Yeah. Then uh, you're you're way below the floor. Uh, the floor is what holds everything else up. So, for example, if you're getting six mile to the gallon and fuel is 240, that fuel is costing you 40 cents a mile to run. Yep. Okay. So that's your fluctuation. Uh, you know, if you can get down to 30 cents a mile and knock a dime off, that's your fluctuation not three and four hundred dollars a load. Uh, a broker made the quote a few days ago that we're going to make all the money we can because you guys have been making it. So we're going to keep the rates as low as we can and keep all, all we can. We'll use any any excuse we have to. Of course, I'd already blew up on them and and they didn't want our business anymore anyway. So he didn't really care what he said. But uh, now when I when I say blow up, that does not mean unprofessional. Because right. whether I'm bad or happy, I have a um, moral and a Christian obligation to remain uh, sensible and... Uh, be stern. But you can still be stern and do that. Sure. So... To go back to the answer to your question, as a down spiral, uh, I wouldn't call it a spiral. I would call it a downgrade through the year of 19. Then in January of 20, uh, it got a little steeper dropping. Now, I'm not talking about dropping by dollars. I'm talking about dropping by cents. And But then as before Phyllis had her heart attack in February, uh, the last few loads we ran right before that, it was in a spiral. It was dropping like there was no, like there was yeah. going to nothing. So that's pretty much the, the the downward turn of our rates as to where right. we are. Tonight. 73 cents on the board this morning. Uh, <laughs> 73 cents to $1.20. There was one load for $1.30 going to New Jersey, God help you. So if we take a a dollar twenty. Our break even is one twenty six. Okay, and that's that's at two dollar and forty cent fuel, uh, which is pretty common right now. We've yeah. we've seen fuel down around a dollar ninety nine to cheapest that we've seen it. Now we've seen it on a computer a little cheaper than that, but we hadn't seen it actually a you know a sign that said sure. we'll go for this price. So at at uh, at two dollar and forty cent fuel, a dollar twenty six is break even. So if we say okay, we'll take this dollar thirty and go to Jersey. What does that cost us to go there? You figure the tolls and the, the various costs, the higher price of fuel, 
And then what can I get back out of Jersey or Atlanta or wherever you're talking about? But there's nothing on, there's been zero loads on there for three and a half weeks that would actually turn around somewhere, say, from here to the East Coast and then back to Houston or back to Dallas or back to anywhere that was actually profitable. Thankfully, for the Snows who haul van freight, market dynamics improved quite well by the summer. I'm due for a check-in with them for sure. Stay tuned in the new year. Number four in the countdown, answering a few hours of service questions from readers just after the new flexible options went live in late December, September. Excuse me. My name is Howard Dover. I'm out of Victorville, California, and I do interstate commerce. And I was just wondering if I thought you could take a three-hour break in the sleeper berth because you're sleepy, you know, and uh, you, you want to take a nap. Then it'll extend your 14 hours out three hours because you're taking a three hours in the sleeper berth, seven hours in the sleeper berth later. And I said that would, that would help if you're sleepy, you know, and you need to take a nap for a little bit, but you don't want to lose out on drive time. That would, that would be my question. The answer Thank to you. that question was yes. The new split sleeper provision allows both shorter and longer periods to pause the 14-hour duty clock, in addition to a variety of other changes. In that same podcast, though, I laid out some issues with certain ELDs accounting for the pause when the split has begun. In short, the compliance assist tools like the countdown clocks and the like within them didn't reflect the 14-hour clock pause value. Thereafter, we detailed a few ways providers were then responding to their customers' concerns on this score. Search ELD providers at overdriveonline.com to find that reporting. Also in this edition of the podcast, voices from this year's 10-4 on DC event held entirely outdoors in the mall again this year amidst the pandemic. The very day, in fact, that President Trump was flown to Walter Reed Medical Center during his own battle with the virus. The audio here is worth another listen in full, in part given the symphony of air horns from the raucous evening rollout as the sun set in full. You can find a video of this, too, at Overdrive's YouTube channel, youtube.com slash overdrivemag. I got involved with 10-4 about uh, three years ago. We uh, created the first 10-4, this is our third year. Um, just got involved, involved because I wanted to help drivers to get a little more voice in the industry. And uh, after the three years of advocating, I think that uh, some of the drivers in the different groups have actually made some difference because we have the uh, FMCSA now considering the driver board and things like that to help give drivers, you know, more of that voice in the industry. And, and I think that's what, you know, ultimately that's that's where it's about, giving the guy behind the seat you know, a little more say in, in what's going on. That's, that's my recommendation. Oh, it's a good uh, good time to get, get you know, get away from the business a little bit. And uh, I like, I enjoy the camaraderie with the, the other truckers and being part of something and coming to D.C. here. Being in this, I brought my last year. I brought my grandson down here, and we went, you know, took tours of the White House and the Capitol and this and that. Of course, this year it's probably not going to be, you know, able to do all that. But there's so much to see here in D.C., and uh, I don't think anybody can see it in one or two days, you know. So, I mean, I've. This is my third year, so... This is my second year for 10-4 on D.C. I missed last year, but I was part of the Strong 50 with Dan. Uh, I just met a lot of those people. I mean, it's, it's fun. That's the best part about it. You know, just meeting new places. Doing stuff like this, it's just something, you know. I come to this event to help sponsor and promote the trucking industry. When we first started, everybody drove a cab over. And I think... That gives you the impression that 
uh, you're the first thing on the scene when you run the back or something. And uh, most of the time you get killed. And I think that made better truck drivers. They put these rookies in cab over trucks. And I said, you tell them I want you to go drive around Bobtail for a week in West Virginia. <laughs> I think they'll come back. If you don't regularly tear it off pieces, they'll come back and be a truck driver. There's so much to learn. These old trucks don't stop bobtailing that good. And, uh, uh, you know, I'd say give them a week, 500 miles a day of driving around bobtailing, and you come back, if you ain't wrecked or uh, hurt nothing, we'll give you a trailer next week and let you go from there. But, uh, and log it, you know, get them, get them on the right trail. I believe, I believe that would help trucks. Uh, it, it was surely, surely, uh, it's better than taking a, a man that's been driving six months as a, as a trainer, and you train a guy for for three weeks and then turn him loose on the road. I got three kids. I got two girls. They, they, uh, my my grandpa. That's who gave me the bug when I was a kid. Uh, I used to go riding with him when I was. Oh man, I, you couldn't get me out of the truck. He owned his own truck. So, I mean, I knew a little bit about owner operator and all that stuff like, through him. You know? But every summer when I wasn't in school and he'd tell me, you know, hey, baby, you want to go for a ride? And I'm like, yeah, where are we going? Or whatever. My mom would have to be calling. Well, back then they still had pay phones and they, you know, they didn't have a cell phone. Mom, she was like, when's he coming home? And he'd be like, when do you, when you want to come home? I was like, oh, no, 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 let's go somewhere else. <laughs> So then that gave me the bug and always had to work on stuff and clean the trucks. And then uh, my wife, her grandfather, he was a truck driver for 45 years. And, you know, he just recently passed away a couple of years ago. And he, uh, me and him had always talked about truck driving. And my grandpa, he was, he was a truck driver for 40 something years when he passed. And, and then, uh, yeah, I got two daughters and a son, and hopefully son gets the bug like I did. Well, I started off, you know, like a, a lot of people. Uh, in fact, the first company I drove for, we hauled junk cars. First down junk cars. And then we hauled wood. And then 1978, I bought my first brand new Kenworth and uh, a W900, and I started hauling produce from California. And I ran from Virginia to California for 26 years. And New York City, Hunts Point Market, and all that. Uh, that's where we start. I still pull reaper. I haul pork and beef for a woman out of uh, Iowa, Illinois, and uh, South Dakota, and all. But I also have a haul from uh, Roanoke, Virginia, to Jacksonville with bread that I've been running since January. Just one trip right behind the other. And, I have a direct haul out of Alma, Georgia. I bring dog food back to Richmond, Virginia. So anytime I go south, I bring dog food direct back, and I sell dog food too. And uh, I got three different places, convenience stores and tea stores and stuff, where I leave trailers at. And they sell it off my trailer. And, and uh, uh, that's the extra income. I have two trucks and five trailers and I'm the only man. And they uh, I got hooked up with BBI Logistics out of Chicago. They have uh, all these contracts with all these major restaurants. If they have a cooler go out, like Cracker Barrel, Olive Garden, Ice Back Roadhouse, all these major restaurants. If they have a cooler go down, then I take a trailer down so they can save what they got and until uh, they get the cooler fixed. And that pays good. That, that's an extra income and uh, every time uh, a tornado or hurricane comes through the area down there, I'm the first one he calls for Richmond, Virginia Beach, and North Carolina. And uh, if I'm not home, I got a friend that spots the trailer for me with the other truck. And uh, uh, we'd be surprised how much we do for Walmart. You know, all the Walmart distributions have big generators, but none of the stores have generators. And you would think they would use their own trailers, but they don't. They do it all outside carrier. And uh, they they pay a flat rate of $400 a day and uh, whatever amount of days. Sometimes they use them, sometimes they don't. But we still get guaranteed so many days, you know. And uh, so you got to find them little niches 
to help out. In, in this business, it's all in who you know. It's a lot about what you know. And service is the only thing you have to offer. And if you don't offer good service, they get somebody else. Uh, I told the dog food man, it took me a year and a half to get my foot in the door. And I told him, I said, look, I know I don't look like much, but if you give me a chance, I'll tell you what I can do. And I've been hauling it six years and haven't been late with a load yet. And those people are good to me. Uh, I can go around the back of the building and load and come around the front of the building. They pay me for my freight before I leave. And you don't find that much anymore. You know, back when we first started trucking, the freight rate was on the bill of lading. And the 10% for the broker and the rest was driver's pay or truck owner's pay. And uh, then they started covering that up where you couldn't see so they could steal more. And, uh, uh, but it's up to you to make your mind up what you're going to haul it for. And, you know, I get $3 a mile on just about everything I'm interested in anymore. Sometimes I had 380 last week. And I, I, had, I had some 18 miles, pay $600, you know, for four pallets. And that was cheesecake. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, it's, it's all in creating a relationship with people that you can trust and they trust you. Amongst ourselves, we've talked about what brokers do and stuff like that as far as trying to gouge people on price stuff. I mean, it's an age old game that we've all dealt with. For myself, you know, I, I have more of a contract style work for the last few years and I haven't been in the game of having to book loads off, which I've done for years, but not recently. And, you know, I have buddies that do and you hear stories about how bad it is. But, you know, it's always, well, they're going to pay me what I want. I ain't going to haul it. And then uh, during the pandemic, I actually went and hauled groceries, which was another type contract thing. So I still wasn't dealing with the huge price gouging that went on, but I started hearing more and more about it. Once a truck driver, always a truck driver, you know what I mean? So, I, well, we did an article um, about three weeks in a Slavic newspaper, about three weeks prior to the event, and we called in the Slavic community to come out and instead of talking to each other, you know, and crying about it, make a difference. You know, come out, uh, you know, do a you know peaceful protest and kind of, you know, speak out and, you know, have that awareness to the public, you know, share it where, you, you know, they can see what, exactly what's going on and you're being price gouged. You're the ones that on the front lines, delivering the food to the tables so people can have food during this you know, pandemic. Uh, but yet you're the one are, you're the one that's getting screwed in the end. And then you're being paid you know, uh, 64 cents a mile, which you can't even pay your bills. You can't even fuel up your truck, you know, without uh, that kind of, so that's what kind of came to my attention. And I had a lot of customers that came to me and then they're like, dude, like we're getting screwed. We can't pay you, we can't, you know? And I'm gonna be like, if it's gonna keep on going at the pace it's gonna go, I'm not gonna have a job. Nobody's gonna have a job, you know what I mean? So I'm like, Somebody needs to trying to do this job safely and make a good living for my family and I. And trying to uh, make a little bit of a difference out here in, in the driver's safety and give us a little flexibility in our hours of service and, and freedom that we all started this business for, or started into this business. Because most of these guys out here don't want to work a nine to five job or an eight to five job. They want to do their own thing and, and make something for themselves. That was one of the things that got me involved back when they when implemented the ELD in 2017. And my buddy was telling me about that they were putting that in place. And I it, it just really scared me because I, I, I don't think it's ever good for a driver to have to make a choice between making money and being safe. We have to give them flexibility in their day. Be able to make a decent living and a decent amount of time, but do it on a on a schedule that I can be flexible around traffic, weather, and loading conditions. Therein, the voices of 10-4 organizer Fred Bowerman, small fleet owner Dan Davidson, Davidson leased owner-operator David Lewis, owner-op Artie Daniel, trucker Mike Landis, former owner-op CJ Carmen, and owner-operator Todd Graham.
Number three in the countdown, a piece with a provocative headline that, well, happened to be true. $50 and a little install work could save your life. New York-based trucker Scott Carlson there told the story of a basic carbon monoxide detector in his sleeper that, well, here's how he tells it. I had come back into our yard off a run, got there late at night, and late at night I usually stay in the truck and go home first thing in the morning. Uh, we all, the whole fleet is equipped with uh, Thermocane tri-packs, the Evolution 3s, and we have some electric ones, but most of them are the Evolutions, where they have the small diesel heater. And I'm by no means putting any blame on Thermocane, their equipment. It was just a fluke. Uh, the small exhaust tube for the auxiliary heater had broken, but it broke right underneath my cab. You really can't hear anything. It's just air rushing out, you know, just yeah. like an exhaust sound. Uh, the CO2 that was coming out of that tube and where it was broke at was underneath the fresh vent air underneath the cab, and it came right up into the sleeper. Uh, I was sleeping. We have in our trucks... CO2 detectors. What Carlson's talking about are carbon monoxide detectors. That's a CO detector, just to be clear. So what he's saying here is a broken exhaust from his diesel-powered APU was broken in the exact wrong spot, just below a vent in the cab. Fortunately, the fleet's trucks were outfitted with those detectors. Mounted low on the sleeper wall down near where Carlson lays his head when asleep in his. We have them mounted in the sleepers down low by the floor where they're supposed to be and mine went off and woke me up had a severe headache nothing i've ever experienced like that i've never had a migraine but people said migraines are actually the worst uh nauseous eyes were burning i do have a peterbilt which has the side door on the bunk i popped that open because my head's right there and i was able to call into our shop and uh, my dispatcher actually came outside to check on me and got me out of the truck. You couldn't, you couldn't get out on your own power, Scott? No, I got out on my own power. I, I, okay, got okay. Up, I got up sitting on the bunk. Then I was able to move to the seat and move out. Um, yeah. like I, said, I think at that point, I don't know how much longer I would have slept without the alarm going off. I mean, that alarm was its pretty loud, especially in a confined space of a sleeper. We put them in when we had an owner-operator get very sick a few years ago. I mean, it was done right away. When he had his incident, within three to four days, they were starting to install these uh, detectors in our trucks. Carlson hauls for Ripley, New York-based Regal Services. And the carbon monoxide detector they install is the Safety Alert by uh, RV-centric manufacturer MIT Industries. Number two in the countdown, what else would my conversation with and relaying of reader questions to FMCSA Enforcement Director Joe DeLorenzo, recorded during Overdrive's Gats Week series of online events held the week the Great American Trucking Show otherwise would have taken place this year in August, canceled due to the pandemic. DeLorenzo detailed many of the intricacies of the new hours of service rules, flexibility enhancing options, and answers a bevy of questions taken live during the broadcast on Overdrive's Facebook page. Here's one in particular addressing the new 14-hour clock pause value of the shorter pair in a split sleeper break. When it comes to the ability to stop the 14-hour clock, does it matter if the off-duty period is more than three hours? No, same thing there, minimums, right? Yeah. So it's gotta be a minimum of two. So if you make it, let's just say it ends up being four. Okay, if you end up four, as long as you match it up, with at least a seven, you know, you'll have more than 10. You know, I keep and I can get that math. And uh, all four would be excluded from the calculation. You would calculate it exactly the same way I walked through it on the slide before. Right. You know, one, one of the reasons I think that there's, um, there's kind of been a, a, a lot of wonder about, about this is that, you know, some, we've heard from some folks out in, out in the enforcement community kind of, kind of uh, implying the opposite about the short, shorter periods um, and kind of referencing this old interpretation from back, I think, when the, first, when the 14 hour rule first came into play. And uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm remembering this right, uh, you know, it was kind of before the, a change that disallowed the ability to use that shorter off duty period to kind of pause that 14, uh, you know, just like the long one did. 
Right, but but uh, anyway, the interpretation was that if you don't actually sort of stay within the split cycle, that you lose the pause value of the shorter period. Uh, you know, under that, and you know, in the example here with the driver, actually, if he would, did go all the way out to ten on that uh, seven-hour, uh, you know, that second off-duty period, it, I think that old interpretation would basically have it that you don't reset uh, your available daily hours after you complete that ten. And you kind of retroactively create a 14-hour violation on the previous day, which seems really crazy to me. But uh, that that's, seems, that's exactly the point. Is you, it's just one? It just doesn't make it. It's not really fair, yeah, right? And yeah. so you can't be not in violation and then suddenly in violation later when yeah. you weren't earlier. And again, the point here is to be flexible and really. What we don't want to do is we don't want to disincentivize somebody from from taking more rest. I mean, that seems crazy to say, oh, well, you shouldn't take more because that other period won't count. You know, the whole point is to give the driver the ability to get as much rest as they can and, you know, be able to be flexible. So that's old stuff. That's what we're going to spend the next, you know, 35 or six or seven days that we have to uh, get our get all those state folks up to speed and get what have you involved. seen when it comes to enforcement of the rules as yet? Consistency in 2021, as in 2020. If you have a question and or experience to share, a story tip, or something else entirely, dial our podcast message line at 530-408-6423 to add your voice to the discussion. Finally. On to the number one most listened to podcast of the year. Believe it or not, a message from FMCSA chief at the time, Jim Mullen, that I think fairly surprised a lot of people in Overdrive's audience. Mullen was speaking from the February Symposium of the Specialized Carriers and Rigging Association in Charlotte, North Carolina, before the pandemic flung us into the ensuing chaos and well before the hours of service final rule was in place. Mullen's words spoke to a commitment to pursuing the hours changes and well, something of a defense of the clarion call for flexibility that's been such a huge part of so many drivers' message over the last decade and more. Achieved now to a degree, though many hope for more. Coda to Mullen's message, of course, he stepped down from his role at the helm of the agency, which he held for less than a year. We'll let Jim Mullen take us out. See you again in 2021. Posey may not say that, I don't know, I do not know. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here uh, and join you. I had a nice discussion with some of you before uh, taking the stage, and I'll say these types of uh, conferences and meetings are always very productive for me and, and my fellow uh, colleagues at FMCSA. In the NPRM, we talked about allowing a 7-3, split sleeper berth. Uh, our rulemaking has to be driven basically entirely by data. There is data that supports that a 7-3 uh, would not compromise safety uh, or sleep patterns. There are some sleep data that suggest that going further than 7.3 could be problematic, going 6.4 could be problematic, 5.5 and so on. Um, so that also is in the deliberative stages. But the theme is flexibility. We understand that drivers out there are hauling freight day to day. They need flexibility to be as safe as they possibly can. The rigid rules just do not work. Uh, and it seems as if time has proven that they do not work. And so this administration is listening, and we're going to go forward with the final rule. Another issue we talked about this morning um, was CSA. Um, as you all know, CSA has been around for 10 years now. Uh, Congress mandated that uh, the National Academy of Sciences do a study of CSA, which was done a little over two years ago. And the thing that the National Academy of Sciences recommended was we use this system called item response theory, IRT. IRT is a very complicated, complex statistical modeling. Um, we're, we've designed it. We've been writing it side by side with CSA for a while now. Uh, it seems to be a very good tool. And, and remind you, CSA was intended only to be a, a tool that the FMCSA could use to determine which carriers were at high risk of having accidents in the future. That was the purpose. Unfortunately, when it was rolled out by the agency, it took on a life of its own. As we all now know in this room, it's used by plaintiff's lawyers, it's used by the insurance industry, it's used by shippers. Um, that was never the intent. And you may know that there are disclaimers on the website that says, don't use this for anything. 
This is entirely an internal tool, but we can use all the disclaimers we want, but judges still allow it in evidence and other folks still use it. Um, so again, that was never intended. Uh, I was never a big fan of CSA, quite candidly, when I was in the, in the private sector in the regulated community. Uh, the flaws, we're working on fixing those. IRT fixes some of those things, but the problem with IRT is it's complicated. And we're struggling with how are we going to go into a motor carrier and explain to them why we're there to do the investigation? Because it's that, it's that complicated. Statistic modeling is that complicated. In addition to which, I'm sure there'll be a congressional hearing on it, and I'll have a hard time explaining the statistic modeling behind IRT. I can explain that it works well. I can explain that when you use IRT and you, you pull out the, the bottom 10% of the industry for investigation, I can show you that the accident rate of those carriers, about five times those, above the national average, but the actual math behind it is complicated. So we're working through that process and we'll make the determination in the near future, which way to go. Thanks to all for listening. And again, to Overdrive Radio's sponsor, First Guard. The Overdrive Radio podcast is a production of Overdrive Magazine. It's edited and produced by me, Todd Dills, with no small amount of support from editorial director Max Heine, Overdrive Extra contributor Paul Marhofer, Social media coordinator Holly Young, news editor Matt Cole, and executive editor James Gillette. Till next time, keep it pro out there.